0: everybody welcome to the latest and greatest episode of inside the hexagon i am your host as always phil lanides and alongside me is absolutely nobody Uh, unfortunately josh and i recorded this or recorded the the episode last night but there was an issue that's the unfortunate part and uh, i i essentially had we had some mic problems and so uh josh was Sadly, unable to schedule some time to re record. So, I am going to do this solo. First time that I'm doing an event episode by myself. But this is a very interesting Strike Force event to cover. I, I know it well. So, I think we're going to have some fun here. Before we move forward, I just want to welcome everybody to the show. Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force. Which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And on this episode, we are going to be discussing Strikeforce Diaz versus Daily, which took place on April 9th, 2011, at the Valley View Casino Center in San Diego, California. In the main event, Strikeforce welterweight champion Nick Diaz would put his title on the line against challenger Paul Semtex Daily. In the co-main event, Gilbert Melendez would return after about a year away from the cage to defend his belt against Japanese superstar Tatsuya Kawajiri in a rematch. Also on the card, we would see Gegard Musassi make his return against the Dean of Mean, Keith Jardine, and then also Lyle Fancy Pants Beerbomb would take a big step up in competition against Japanese submission ace Shinya Aoki. I want to mention that Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out the other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. All right, the fallout from Strike Force Fajao versus Henderson is the previous major Strike Force event. Dan Henderson had brutalized Fajao Cavalcante in the main event to take his light heavyweight title, further cementing his legacy as an all-time MMA great. Also on the card, Marluce Kunin survived Liz Carmouche. I mean that she survived her. She barely got a submission in the fourth round to keep her bantamweight belt. Carmouche dominated the vast majority of the fight and Kunin just I mean she came through at the end there. Pretty crazy. We also saw Tim Kennedy submit Melvin Manhoff, uh, as well as Jorge Masvidal take on uh, Billy Evangelista and win a rather lackluster decision. I did want to mention, if you haven't already, make sure you check out my interview with Tim Kennedy in the archives. Really great connecting with him, and I hope that if you did listen to it, that you enjoyed it. All right, so originally, this April 9th event was planned to feature the next set of heavyweight Grand Prix bouts. And uh, they were also expecting the return of KJ Noons. He had been out since breaking his hand in a title loss to Nick Diaz the previous year. However, both the Grand Prix bouts and KJ Noons would be moved to later dates. Instead, would we get the aforementioned Diaz versus Daily card? Or would we? Because on March twelfth, less than one month before Diaz versus Daily, we got one of the biggest Strike Force announcements announcements, really maybe one of the biggest MMA announcements in history, and that is that Strike Force had been sold. By Scott Coker and his partners at the Silicon Valley uh, Sports and Entertainment Group to Zufa, which at the time was the parent company of the UFC. It's never been confirmed, but the dollar figure put on the deal, and most, it's accepted by many journalists out there that, and this was including licensing rights, fighter contracts, and the Strike Force video library, put that, that dollar figure at $40 million. I remember personally being pretty bummed out about this uh, as I, I felt like as a strike force fan, I kind of felt like I'd been sold out a little bit. Uh, I also lost a stream of income from the deal as my agreement with strike force ended at that time as well. Uh, we, I talked with Josh about the same thing on his side that he'd lost a, a stream of income. And then just, again, we were both big fans of strike force. We, you know, it was a passion project for both of us. And so that was, that was difficult. But there were others that were worried as well that had higher stakes or, you know, more skin in the game. Some force fighters, such as the headliners for this event that we're discussing, Nick Diaz and Paul Daly, they both had strained relationships with Dana White and the UFC. In fact, Daly tweeted, quote, business as usual. What if I don't want to fight for Dana White slash Zufa? Dana White bans me for life from the UFC, then buys Strikeforce and thinks I'm still going to be easy and fight on one of the most anticipated fights of the year versus Diaz, which will no doubt make Zufa Dana White money. Diaz or Daily versus Diaz still on. Somebody better holler at my manager real quick. So obviously whatever happened there did get worked out because Daly did compete, but it is worth mentioning that at least one strike force fighter was excited about the acquisition. and That was lightweight champ Gilbert Melendez. Uh, he had, if I remember correctly, he had actually spoken in the media about possibly going to the UFC at some point. He really wanted to test himself. And so he also mentioned in, in an interview around this time that the acquisition gave him extra motivation for his bout with Tatsuya Kawajiri because that would give him a chance that if he won that you know he might get some higher profile fights and some bigger name fights and be able to prove that he's the best 155er in the world which he may have been at that time. Dana White was also interviewed around this time. He confirmed that Strike Force would be kept separate from the UFC and that while some UFC fighters might sign with Strike Force if they wanted to, we would not be seeing super fights we would not be seeing the big you know the champion of the ufc versus the champion of strike force but i do want to mention uh for more of a deep dive on this deal and what it meant to mma then and what it means now make sure you check out our last our most our previous episode it was a sit-down interview between me and longtime mma reporter john morgan john is a friend of mine we go way back i had a great time breaking down this acquisition again what it meant to the fighters what it meant to the sport as a whole and how it's viewed today uh, as well as his per- overall perspective on Strike Force. And so that was a great chat. So, again, if you haven't already, make sure that you check that out in the ar- ar- archives. Another big announcement around the sign was that Gina Carano was signed, sealed, and delivered to be coming back to Strike Force. I had forgotten about this, but she was actually scheduled to fight on the June Strike Force card against Sarah De Ale- Ale- Alelio. This was pretty surprising because Dana White had been very clear at that point that he would never, ever promote women's MMA. He changed his mind. <laughs> but now that Zufa was under the or sorry now that strike force was under the Zufa banner some thought that this might be the death knell for for major female fights again we would all, we all know that that would prove not to be the case and Corona would come back uh, i'm sorry Carano coming back was a positive sign and we will talk more about that all right there was a challengers event around this time challengers wilcox versus dom took place on april 1st uh, 2011 at the Stockton Arena in Stockton, California. Not a ton of noble na- notable names on this one. Lorenz Larkin TKO'd former kickboxing star Scott Lighty in the second round. Karis Fodor TKO'd David Douglas in the third round, and in the main event, AKA fighter Justin Wilcox TKO'd Rodrigo da- Dom at the end of the first round. All right, but this brings us to the event that we're that we're here to talk about. Strikeforce Diaz versus Daily again took place. Uh, uh, April 9th, 2011 at the Valley View Casino Center in San Diego, California. Gus Johnson was back for this one, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, but he was teamed up once again with Mauro Ranallo and Frank Shamrock broadcasts on Showtime Diaz versus daily drew slightly better ratings than Fajal versus Henderson with the former drawing an average of 528,000 viewers while the latter drew an average of 412,000. So, uh, but however, both were well short of Fedor versus Silva, which held the record for a Showtime broadcast for Strikeforce, which drew an average of 741,000 viewers. So once the broadcast kicked off, uh, Morrow and Al interviewed Scott Coker. I mean, before they got to any fights and asked him about the acquisition and Coker said it was a real tough decision, uh, but it had been in the works for a while. Coker said they still had their own fighters, their own broadcast contract, and their own events, but now had Zufa's promotional muscle behind them. He deemed it Strikeforce 3.0, which I assume Strikeforce 1.0 was their kickboxing phase, and then once they moved to MMA, that was 2.0, and now this was 3.0. He said there were talks to expand into Canada and beyond. Coker also say that while strike force in the UFC would continue to operate separately he did expect to see championship dream fights such as Alistair Overeem versus Cain Velasquez and Gilbert Melendez versus Frankie Edgar so interesting that Coker said that Dana said that that would not be happening so you know what would, would end up, we did not end up seeing that we just saw the UFC start to siphon strike force fighters away and we'll talk more about that actually in this broadcast in this podcast because uh, there that started to happen as soon as this event uh, was over pretty much but so dana uh by the way despite earlier comments that indicated that he would not be in attendance he was cage side apparently uh they said p- had to put extra pressure on the fighters as they had the opportunity to make an impression one way or the other on the biggest promoter in, in mma and you know would that play a factor in any of the fights we would see but let's go under the uh, over the undercard at 145 pounds robbie peralta defeated hiroyuki takaya via split decision. At 265 pounds, heavyweight, Virgil Swicker defeated Brett Albee via TKO, come by way of strikes at 146 of the first round. At lightweight, Joe Duarte defeated Sa- Saeed Awad via submission come by way of armbar at 245 of the second round. Said longtime Bellator fighter. Uh, at welterweight, Herman Toredo or Teredo, I'm sorry, yeah, Herman Torredo defeated AJ Matthews via KO come by way of punch at 416 of the first round. At a catch weight of 140 pounds, Rolando Perez defeated Edgar Cardenas via unanimous decision. And then at a middleweight, Casey Ryan defeated Paul Song via submission, come by way of triangle choke at 139 of the first round. All right, let's get to the main card. Here we go. So at 155 pounds, Shinya Aoki defeat, or I'm sorry, took on Lyle Beerbomb. Aoki was 26 and 5. He was the dream lightweight champion coming in. He had won six of his last seven MMA bouts. With the one loss coming to Gilbert Melendez in strike force in Nashville, Mara pointed out that Aoki was back, wanted revenge against Gill, but he had to get through Fancy Pants first. And it's worth mentioning, uh, Shinya Aoki, and this is, this was Josh actually mentioned this during the recording uh, that we did yesterday that Shinya came out to a big crowd response, and it was you know pretty crazy for a San Diego crowd uh, to to respond that you know strongly to a, a native Japanese fighter who didn't speak English, didn't really have any big. U.S. ties, but he, he apparently had a following there. Uh, this was right around the time of the massive Japanese or uh, uh, earthquake that happened uh, in Jap- uh, Japan back then, and 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 just there was all kinds of devastation. I don't, I vaguely remember that. I don't know a lot about it, but uh, the commentators made, you know, they they discussed that a little bit, and uh, Aoki and Kawajiri both uh, got, you know, seemed to get emotional, and and it was a it was a pretty big deal, so. Uh, but Beerbom was sixteen and one coming in, which included a three and one record in strike force. A lot of his wins were against unheralded competition, but he did have stoppage wins over UFC vets like Gerald Strebent and Hafaela, uh, I'm sorry Hafaelo Oliveira as well as wins in strike force over Dwayne Bang Ludwig and Vitor Shaolin and so he was no joke. Uh, then he, uh, you know, as he's on this big run, he was 16-0, and 0, and then he had actually lost his most recent fight. It was a decision to the very, very tough Pat Healy. So that was his first career setback. But he was still given this massive opportunity to fight one of the best lightweights in the world in Shinya Aoki. And I, I have to mention, we have talked about Lyle a little bit on this podcast. Uh, again, if you don't remember, I did sponsorships for him for a while and actually managed him as a fighter uh, for, for a while there. And he has a really amazing story. Uh, he got into to drugs in the, I believe the early 2000s, specifically meth, committed several felonies over the course of six years. And he got time in prison. He actually got a year in state prison. And while he was in state prison, he saw the UFC on TV and thought, man, I could do that. And on the day of his release, He had his dad take him to a gym on the way home so he could check it out and started training immediately, had his first amateur fight eight days after his release from state prison. He went 10-0 as an amateur before turning pro in 2007 and running his record to 16-0, again, heading into 2011. Then he had that loss to Healy. But he had really had an amazing, amazing story. Uh, He was featured in a a, a documentary, I believe it's called Fight Life, and I think 2012 or 2013 and I just, just a crazy story. And we'll, we'll get to that a, a little bit more in just a few minutes, but Lyle's pants for the fight itself. They were not quite as fancy as they were patriotic. Uh, normally had a lot of the, the nineties, you know, kind of chevrons and just diff, you know, neon colors and that sort of thing. But this time they were covered with small American flag emblems. So once the, the bell rang beer bomb clinched early on, but Aoki was able to turn that around and get a trip takedown. And this was really the beginning of the end as the Japanese submission fighter was able to get beer bombs back and sink in a neck crank, and, I mean, my God, it was on tight, and that was all she wrote. Beer bomb was forced to tap. Essentially, it looks like a rear naked choke, uh, but the the forearm is across the jaw and the chin with the head being turned, and it looked very, very painful. So the official result resor, excuse me, official result was Shinya defeating Lyle Bierbaum via submission come by way of face or neck crank at 133 the first round. And, you know, just not a smart game plan for Lyle. I, you know, not that Lyle was known for being a great uh, a great striker. He was just kind of a, an all-around fighter, but wrestling seemed to be mostly his base. And, you know, when you why would you go to the ground with a guy that that's where he's going to beat you? And, you know, probably should have kept things standing. And just Josh also pointed out just kind of a weird strategy. And, and just, I mean, it was a mismatch. Lyle... Lyle's experience level was not on that of uh, of a guy like Shinya Aoki and talent level and all that stuff. But, you know, man, but uh, as soon as the fight was over, my God, there it was. They showed Dana White on camera smiling, wearing a strike Strikeforce uh, t-shirt and just an image. I never thought I'd see Sting's a little bit to, to see it, you know, even now as I was prepping for this. And they also showed Lorenzo, showed Lorenzo Fertitta, Dominic Cruz, Jake Shields and Nate Diaz uh, from the UFC. They actually showed Uh, Gilbert and Jake in there, the scrap pack all together in the locker room and just kind of crazy to see all those guys. Dominic, uh, at least I don't know if he's actually from San Diego, but that's he was based there. So it made sense for him to be there. But just just a surreal moment to see these guys all together and just kind of kind of crazy. Uh, but despite, I want to mention, you know, as far as what happened, uh, the aftermath, what happened after um, the fight and everything that, that kind of went down there. Uh, so we, you know, despite the rematch for, I'm de- uh, uh, sorry, the desire for a rematch with Gilbert Melendez, this would be it for Shinya Aoki and Strikeforce. Uh, today, he's still active at 38 years old. He won the 1FC welterweight title in 2019, then dropped it to Christian Lee in his next bout. And he is 2-0 in 2021 as we record this in November overall his record stands at 47 9 and 1 in mma which means since his win over fancy pants and i apologize if my math is wrong here but if my math is right uh since this this fight he is 20 and 4 in mixed martial martial arts with three of those losses coming to eddie alvarez ben Askren, and the aforementioned christian lee so that's a I mean, that's nobody to hang your head, into you know, in in uh, nobody to hang your head at as far as losing to. And he he beat the he's beaten the likes of Razor Rob McCullough, Antonio McKee, and then one of my all-time favorites, and kind of the predecessor to Shinya If you're a Pride fan, you probably know who I'm talking about Kazushi Sakuraba, and then uh, he's beaten a bunch of others, obviously, but. Very impressive run for uh, for Aoki. Unfortunately, not nearly as impressive would be as w- what's happened to Fancy Pants since his time in Strikeforce. This was actually his last fight with the promotion as well. Uh, but he would go nine and one over the remainder of his career, which included a win over Marcus Aurelio. The one, lone loss came to a very tough Jacob Volkman. Uh, the other fights, I didn't recognize any of those those any of the other guys he beat. So a lot of regional stuff uh, up in the the Pacific Northwest Northwest where he's from, but. Uh, beer bomb last fought in 2013, going out on a three fight win streak that all came via stoppage. But uh, sadly, it seems like Lyle has fallen back into addiction. He got arrested for drugs and burglary in 2016 and then got arrested as we record this again in November of 2021. Almost exactly a year ago, he got arrested again for possession of drugs. Uh, you know, I know that he has a young child. I don't know how he's been doing over the last year. I hope and pray that he's you know be, begun to turn things around. Once again, he's still only 42 years old and obviously has a lot of life in front of him uh, if he can get things straightened out, but, you know, just obviously for his daughter and, and everything, and he's a good guy. Uh, so, I, I, you know, again, thoughts and prayers with Lyle, and I hope that he is doing better as we record this. All right, in the next bout, light heavyweight Gegard Musassi versus Keith Jardine. Originally, this was supposed to be Mousasi taking on Mike Kyle, but Kyle broke his hand in training, so Jardine stepped in on less than two weeks' notice, and that would come into play here. We'll talk about that. The Dean of Mean Keith Jardine, one of my all-time favorite nicknames, nicknames in MMA. I, I just the Dean of Mean Keith Jardine. I mean, that's just cool. I, I love that. Uh, but he was 17 nine and one coming in, which uh, as a, as we're recording this, I noticed you know Shinya uh, Shinyeoki's is forty-seven nine and one. Keith Jardine is 17 nine and one. So they, those last two numbers are the same, but uh, thirty fight, you know, thirty win difference. In, the, in that first one, but uh, coming into this one, Jardine was on a modest two-fight win streak. Neither of those wins came over what I would call stellar competition. Before that, he'd lost six of his last seven with his lone win coming via split decision over Brandon Vera in the UFC two and a half years prior to this. His losses had come at the hands of Vanderley Silva, Rampage Jackson, Di- Tiago Silva, Ryan Bader, Matt Hamill, and Trevor Pringle. So, I mean, big name guys. Uh, but, you know, again, he'd gone down, gone down in defeat to all of them, but still a very tough fighter with wins over Forrest Griffin and Chuck Liddell, which the Liddell one, I believe was the decision when that was the biggest of his career. He badly needed another win here for Massassi's part. This was his first fight in strike force since losing the light heavyweight title to King Mo. He was 33, 30 wins, three losses and one uh, no, or uh, one draw. He was still one of the elite for sure. Uh, he was coming off two MMA wins and one kickboxing win Musassi was supposed to take on Mike Kyle as I mentioned but Kyle had been injured so the Dutchman would take on the very unorthodox Keith Jardine instead all right man very weird to see Jardine's UFC footage used as part of a strike force pre-fight, pre-fight video package I mean it's cool but hearing you know Mike Goldberg and and Joe Rogan on uh, you know on, on commentary there during the you know during the the video package was interesting and Morrow pointed out Jardine's very herky-jerky style, again, very unorthodox. I don't, uh, you know, if you, if you remember watching him fight, he was just always super herky-jerky. He moved a lot, and it was it must have been very weird to prepare for, to find training partners that could imitate that and then just to deal with it in the cage. Uh, but lots of action in the first round, good strikes and early Jardine takedown that Musassi stood up from almost immediately uh, to kind of provide some context here. You know, uh, Musassi in that loss to King Mo, he just got taken down repeatedly. He didn't eat a lot of damage, but he just kept taking, getting taken down, taken down, taken down, taken down. And, you know, that, that, that means something in the judge's eyes. And so this time, and they were saying that Musassi had just stayed on his back too much. This time he got taken down, but he was able to stand right back up. Uh, and then he got taken down again, stood back up again. The two traded on their feet with Musassi getting the better of the exchange. Jardine looked hurt and winded already in the first round, but he survived, got another takedown, which was his fourth of that opening frame. Now, interesting, this time uh, Musassi was able to reverse. I'm sorry, Musassi was able to, to get a strike in from his back. He threw an up kick while on his back, and the ref stopped it. Now, the interesting thing is that Strike Force was now under Zufa rules. Under Strike Force rules, uh, the up kick would have been allowed, but under Zufa rules, it was not. Now, we would also see another new rule come into play in a later fight, which was no elbows to the head of a grounded opponent that was not allowed in strike force. Well, that was now going to be allowed because of the Zufa rule. So this was now, this, uh, this upkick was now illegal. time was called. And I, on replay, you could see he did nail Jardine. He really did nail Jardine. The ref gave Jardine, Mike Beltran, the, the ref gave Jardine a chance to recover, which he took full advantage of. I'm sure the, the, the strike hurt, but he was also again, very winded. Uh, the, the crowd did not like this at all. And then the crowd booed even harder when referee Mike Beltran took a point away. It was kind of a weird sequence. And personally, especially with the way this fight ended up, I am not a fan of that point being taken away. I, You know, it was clearly an accident. Uh, it was not something that was done intentionally. He definitely, you know, hurt Jardine. And I don't know how much damage there was there. But to me, especially with a new rule set, I mean, why not give them an opportunity now, why not give him a you know give him a, give him a warning? If he does something like that again, then take a point away. You know, say if you break the rules again, I don't care what it is, you're getting the point taken away. But to just on that first one to take a point away, I thought that was I I didn't think it was fair. I didn't like that at all, but. Uh, Musashi was, was just, you know, as the round was, you know, as the, the fight was restarted in the first, just blasting Jardines with strikes and, and all that. But then he got caught with a big knee that appeared to cut him. Jardine was cut around both his eyes as the round ended. And it was, it was a great first round, lots of action, really tough to score. I, you know, Despite the four takedowns, because Jardine did so little with them and was getting beat up other than that, I'd probably call this 10-9 for Musassi because of the the damaging strikes, but because of the point that got taken away, it, w- it would end up being a 9-9 round, excuse me, in my mind. So we get to the second round. Musassi, I mean, he is just tagging Jardine with strikes, and the dinamine was starting to bleed pretty heavily, and his baby version of Jim the Anvil, Nighthearts goatee was – was turning blood red. It was it was pretty crazy. Uh, but despite being clearly very winded and bleeding badly, Jardine was able to withstand, got a takedown late in the round. However, with all the damage from from the strikes, I'd give it to Musassi 10-9 in the second round. In the third, huge deep breaths from Jardine at the beginning of that final frame. Uh, shortly after they started fighting, Musassi nailed Jardine in the cup with a knee, which got another time stoppage. No point taken away on this one. After a short break, things were restarted jardine actually seemed to get a second wind here probably having that short break he was pressing for more, more takedowns however however it was musassi who got a takedown and he got a very stiff guillotine choke from the feet almost like a hanging guillotine uh, but the the very tough keith jardine was able to poke his head out then he got taken down again Musasi got full mount pretty quickly and landed a couple shots but jardine who was clearly the crowd favorite was able to, walk, able to walk his feet up the cage and get Musassi off him. It was actually pretty impressive, especially with how tired he was. Uh, then it looked like Jardine either spit his mouth mouthpiece out or he was just breathing with his mouth open and the mouthpiece came out, got another stoppage. Musashi nailed Jardine with a brutal one-two. I mean, he was just killing Jardine on the feet, uh, who was bleeding like a stuck pig. I don't know how he survived, but he did make it to the end of the fight. But, man, what a fight. Other than the multiple time stoppages I really enjoyed, this fight, it was a, a true war. Musassi dominated the final two rounds. I I mean, maybe you could give that first round to Jardine, like I said, with the takedowns. But to me, that's debatable since he didn't really do any damage with them. Uh, again, Beltron shouldn't have taken a point away from the, from the upkick like he did. And, and but especially uh, because in the end, it cost Musassi the fight. Uh, you know, to, it shouldn't have. He dominated the majority of this fight, but the official result. Was uh, two of the judges scored it a draw, which meant they actually scored it for uh two rounds to one. But because of that point being taken away, uh, you know he 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 got the draw, and and then one one judge did score it for Musassi. So it ended in a majority draw. Very unfortunate. Uh, Jardine on the post uh, on the mic in the the you know the post fight interview mentioned it. Just kind of kind of quoted good old Jr. It's it's kind of like kid you know draws are like kissing your sister. You know, nobody really wins. Uh, but if it did make him feel any better, he did get a hug and some words of encouragement from Bill Goldberg cage side afterwards. So uh, Musassi, in my estimation, won the fight. It, it was unfortunate the way that it turned out. Uh, but this is, worth, this, is worth, uh, this is definitely a fight worth watching, in my opinion. Jardine would be back. He would earn another another opportunity in force the following year. While Musassi would compete in Dream before returning to the Hexagon before the end of 2011. All right, we have arrived at the co-main event, Gilbert Melendez versus Tatsuya Kawajiri for the Strikeforce Lightweight Championship. Gilbert Melendez was 18-2 coming in, but had not fought in almost exactly a year. He was on a four-fight winning streak, having last beaten Shinya Aoki the previous April. This was a rematch, as Melendez had beaten Kawajiri via UNAM's decision in Pride in 2006, five years prior. And in an interview with, uh, with MMA Weekly, Gilbert stated that he was actually happy to take a, on a rematch of a bout that he'd already won as he felt like he was a completely different fighter from that, that fight uh, half, a, half a decade before. And he wanted to be able to show that off. So he was actually excited for this this bout. Kawajiri... Was twenty seven six and two had won five of his last six bouts with his law lo- his lone loss coming to Aoki via submission in Japan the previous year which I did find that fight on YouTube and uh, you know it's it's a fairly quick one they got to the the ground pretty quick and they tried to trade leg locks and eventually Aoki was able to cinch one in Kawajiri tapped out but. He had rebounded with a decision win over Josh Thompson four months before this event. So he seemed really primed. That was in, in Japan, and he seemed really primed to get revenge in a major title from Melendez. And this was also Kawajiri's North American debut, so that's a big deal. He has a shot at making a big splash in a new market for him. All right, once the action started, Melendez dropped Kawajiri with a beautiful counter right hand early on, which... You could, I mean, I, I wrote out. It seemed to give him a lot of confidence just in that moment. You could see him gain confidence from that. He also got a couple of nice knees in, which drew a huge reaction from the crowd. The, the champ landed another really solid knee, and the Japanese fighter was clearly hurt. Melendez pounced, grabbing uh, Kawajiri's back and throwing strikes right in front of Dana White' cage side. It was such a cool uh, camera angle that you could just see Dana. I mean, he was right there. I mean, literally inches away as as uh melendez was raining down strikes and pretty nice uh but then they, they end up getting back up they separate you could see kawajiri had not cleared the cobwebs and good lord after eating a few, couple more strikes he shot in for a takedown Melendez was able to sprawl and push kawajiri on his back and from there he threw like i said new rules would come into play those elbows he threw some elbows to the head of a downed opponent that uh, you know again would not have been allowed in strike force previously but kawajiri under Zuffa rules, he ate him, and he ate him bad. Melendez dropped a few heavy ones to Kawajiri's dome, and that was it. He earned the stoppage. I did think when I saw it, the ref stopped it a little bit early, but Kawajiri did not protest. He was too busy recovering flat on his back. So big, big win for the champ, and the crowd went crazy. Very, very nice win for him. So the official result? Gilbert Melendez defeated Tatsuya Kawajiro via TKO come by way of elbows at 314 of the first round to retain the Strike Force Lightweight Championship. And in his post fight interview, Gil said he wanted to unify the Strike Force title with the UFC belt, which the crowd reacted positively to. And Gil versus Frankie Edgar in 2011 would have been an amazing fight. Melendez would be back to defend his title against Jorge Masvidal in December, while Caligiri would be one and done with Strikeforce. He went on to have a decent run with the UFC before heading back to Japan to fight for Ryzen. I'm not going to call him retired, but the 43-year-old last fought in October of 2019, so over two years ago, uh, excuse me, two years ago as we record this, he holds a record of 37-14-2. All right, we have arrived at the main event: Nick Diaz versus Paul Daly for Diaz's Strikeforce Welterweight Championship. Diaz was 24-7. and 7. He was on a nine-fight win streak coming into this bout, which included wins in Strikeforce over Frank Shamrock, Scott Smith, Mary Saromsky, K.J. Noons, and Cyborg Santos. With the Zufa deal, people had to be thinking about Diaz versus GSP, which was, uh, you know, that would have been a massive, massive fight at that time. We would eventually see that fight. But a strong showing here in front of Dana White would go a long ways towards making that happen. Also, uh, Daly, 27-9-2 coming in. This was an opportunity for him to become the first British fighter to ever hold a major MMA title. But he had won all four of his bouts since being banned from the UFC for punching Josh Koscheck after the bell. One of those victories was his brutal one-punch knockout of Scott Smith that Josh never wants to talk about again. Uh, Diaz, I mean, he was on a roll for sure, but so was Semtex, and he presented a very dangerous foe for the champ. All right, big boos for Daly as he came to the cage, and as you would expect, huge cheers for the California native Nick Diaz. Huge stare down between the two in the cage right before the bell with them briefly touching foreheads, and Diaz talking smack while Semtex just smiled at him, but... Diaz immediately started talking to Daly once the fight started, fainting and dropping his hands. Semtex got in closer, and it looked like Diaz dropped to shoot in, and Daly threw some wild strikes, even kicking the champ in the side, which was risky, as if he'd connected with Diaz's head, that would have been an illegal strike. And with these referees, they probably would have taken a point away if not just gone the DQ route. Uh, But Diaz withstood, got things back to his feet, push things against the cage. There was a lot of dirty boxing before Diaz separated landed some really nice punches that appeared to hurt Daly. And Semtex actually shot the guy who was not a wrestler at all. He shot in out of desperation with Diaz going with it and wrapping Daly up. However, they stood back up, back up and Daly looked like he'd recovered. These two were just, I mean, they began trading, just banging, giving the crowd quite a show. With a minute and a half left in the round, Daly landed a left to the temple and Diaz was rocked and dropped. Semtex tried to follow up, and he looked to—he looked like he had the champion in trouble. Referee John McCarthy was checking in with Diaz, but he responded that he was fine, and Daly ended up backing up and letting Diaz get up, which was probably smart. So with 30 seconds left, Daly was hurt with a right hand from Diaz now. The commentators didn't catch it, but Daly sure did, and he was rocked, and the two started trading. The champ was getting the better of it. He got caught and cut, but he smelled blood and kept pressing. Daly fell over very awkwardly if you ever get to watch this fight. It's one of the weirdest, like, when somebody gets knocked off their feet because it was really delayed. It was very weird. Diaz pounced, started throwing punches from the top until the ref stepped, stepped in, and Daly seemed to disagree, but he was really out of it, and it looked like a good stoppage. And so, I mean, just three seconds left in the round. Diaz, though, he was not ready to stop afterwards. He, he pushed a camera out of the way in a, a very famous clip of footage that you've probably seen before. He went over, started pointing his finger close to Daly's face, who again was just kind of out of it and uh, an official pulled Diaz away and Cesar Gracie seemed uh, to have an, a calming effect on Diaz. He, he, you know, once he was able to get in the cage, he, you know, kind of grabbed him around the shoulder and started speaking in his ear. And, and that was probably a really good thing. And eventually Diaz did go over and eventually shake Daly's hand, but the official result Nick Diaz defeated Paul Daly via TKO, come by way of punches at 457 of the first round to retain the Strike Force Welterweight Championship. Semtex would be back to take on Tyron Woodley just a few months after this bout, but this would be it for Nick Diaz inside the hexagon. I did not realize that this was his last Strike Force fight. Uh, he would vacate his title and transition over to the UFC. He was actually supposed to take on George St. Pierre for the welterweight title. Instead, he would be pulled from that bout due to missing flights and press obligations, and he would instead take a decision win over BJ Penn. But just to give you context and perspective on Nick Diaz, at this point, he's 28 years old. Since that, not this point now, but at the point in 2011 that we're discussing, since that 2011 win over BJ Penn, Nick Diaz has only fought four times in MMA, and that's including his stoppage loss to Robbie Lawler at UFC 266 in September of 2021, which is his first fight in is either six or seven years. But think about that. He had won 11 straight victories. The last two were over BJ Penn and, and, and Paul Daly, plus all the names I mentioned earlier. He was only 28 at that time. Since that time, his peak at 38 years old now, he has only fought four times, and he lost all four of those fights. One of the fights, the, the loss to Anderson Silva got overturned. But I just, I mean, yeah, just just kind of crazy. And Josh and I spoke about this when we recorded yesterday. I I'm I believe that that Nick has some uh some some personality issues, uh, you know, I, I, mental health issues that he's undiagnosed anxiety or or pain. I, I don't know that he's ever been diagnosed with anything like that, but just based on the interviews he's done and a lot of the things that he's talked about, I just feel like he, he's dealt, deals with a lot of issues uh, in his mind and that's not a knock. That's not, you know, I'm not in any way trying to make light of anything or say anything negative about him. I just, I just personally believe based on the footage that I've seen, the, you know, the stories I've read, the different things that I've, I've come across that he deals with a lot of, of, you know, a lot of issues in that. And, and so, you know, that would contribute to why we've only seen him despite being only 28 and one of the top lightweights in the world, only compete the uh, you know those four times since that win over over Penn. I mean, I just think that's that's kind of crazy. So but that brings us to the end of, of this event. Uh, I want to give the wrap-up details. No fighters drug uh, pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. The total disclosed fighter payroll was $769,740. And I want to mention when I interviewed John Morgan, Josh and I have both gone On and on at times about the the fighter pay that it's just unfair the way that fighters are are, were paid, especially back then, but but even now. And so I asked john, you know, because all we really have to go off off of are these fighter salaries that are released through the local state athletic commission and I asked John, "How accurate are these?" And this guy's been covering MMA for for years and years, and he said that they're not very accurate accurate at all. He said that due to tax reasons, fighters will often only get paid a certain amount for their fight, but then have a secret a separate kind of secret quote unquote contract for a, a a quote unquote appearance fee that is much higher. So the fighter sal- salaries that we share likely do not include the full amounts of the of that the fighters are paid. Now, of course, there are some that probably don't get, you know, that extra money, so to speak, or, or whatever, but we have no way of knowing. Um, we do know that, that George St. Pierre mentioned recently, um, I believe his disclosed pay was like $500,000 for a fight or something like a pay-per-view fight or something like that. And he said, I believe he said he got like 10 million for that fighter, you know, so it's, um, that obviously, uh, confirms that, um, you know, that those, 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 those fighter contracts are not, you know, are not accurate and, and, or those, you know, yeah, at least what we see from there. So uh, yeah. Okay. Here we go. So George St. Pierre said that for the fight with Michael Bisping in 2019 with the pay-per-views, the sponsorships, everything, he said he made about $10 million. So that was a very, very different, you know that's that's just much different than what he was said to have paid uh, been you know paid as far as based on what the the athletic commission that type of information so so take these salaries with a grain of salt is my point but nick diaz according to the athletic commission got 175,000 with no win bonus paul daly got 65,000 gilbert melendez 150,000 with no win bonus Tatsuya Kawajiri got $97,612.50. I did want to mention Shin- Shinyaoki Aoki got $73,637.50. I'm assuming that those are kind of weird numbers like they are because they were the yen that like in where they come from in Japan and the type of currency they normally use yen would, you know, it probably translated to an even round number you know, with them. But anyways, Gagar Musassi got $150,000 for his draw with Keith Jardine, who got $25,000, and then Lyle Beerbaum got $10,000. But very momentous card in Strike Force history. Really enjoyable card overall. To me, I, my favorite fight was actually the Musassi Jardine fight. Uh, very entertaining from start to finish. Great performances from Aoki, Musassi, Jardine, Melendez, Daly, and Diaz. Uh, Josh, when I asked him about this, he said he really enjoyed the show as well, even though it was tough. Being, you know, knowing that Dana was there and it was the end of an era, but really uh, just a really, really enjoyable card overall. It, there's a pall over it, it kind of cast a pall knowing that this was the end of an era, not just for Strike Force, but for MMA a, as a whole. Uh, again, John and I, John Morgan, and I talked about this on the previous episode, but Strike Force was never a real competitor to the UFC. It was an alternative for fighters to go that you know maybe they just didn't want to be in the UFC or the UFC didn't want them and there was an opportunity there to go make some money elsewhere you know could strike force have survived and still be in business today maybe if they'd stayed a big time reg- regional promotion you know maybe but uh, it's it's just obviously it's tough to say they were talking about expanding anyways so but most of their shows outside that didn't especially those that didn't feature Fedor outside of the bay area didn't sell nearly as well as they did in the bay area And, you know, there were a staff of 10 people. This was not, you know, Josh and I worked for them as contractors. I'm sure they had a bunch of other contractors working for them, but it was a staff of about 10 people. And so they just didn't have the, you know, the depth. They didn't have the resources of a larger company at that point, like the UFC, which was again, pulling in, you know, multimillion dollar gates and pay-per-view buys and all kinds of, they just... It was on a different level. So you could understand why the decision was made, even though it was kind of frustrating. And again, if you want to hear more about that, check out my my interview with John Morgan. But, uh, you know, just just if you haven't already, make sure that you check that out. In our next episode, we are going to be covering Strike Force Overeem versus Verdun, which featured four heavyweight Grand Prix bouts, as well as a lightweight bout between KJ Nunes and Jorge Masvidal. In the Grand Prix, we'd get to see Chad Griggs take on Valentine Overeem. We'll be covering Daniel Cormier battling Jeff Monson. Josh Barnett locked horns with Brett Rogers. And Alistair Overeem went up against Fabricio Verdun in the main event. Again, as mentioned earlier, this card was supposed to feature the return of Gina Carano, but that would not end up happening. We'll talk about why during that episode, but I am looking forward to covering this one. But I do want to, again apologize for just just being me i hope that you were okay with this at least it was uh shorter than it normally is uh but I, I hope that you enjoyed this you make sure you can check us out on social media you can find me on on twitter and on instagram at the hexagon pod and you can find me at phil you can reach me directly at phil at inside the i would love to hear from you but with that we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset we hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon